get started, the main thing that I would say to you guys is uh, they've asked me to kind of speak on this general topic, and I, I titled it The Most Important Family to Pastor in Your Church. And since you don't have a church member that's here, we can say what family that is, right? It's whose family? Your own, right? It's really where it comes down to. But also the throes of ministry is typically, at least the way I, I am wired, typically the people who deserve my best often get my worst. Or at least they get my leftovers. Because I'm giving, 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 going, going, going uh, from sun up, sun down. And I want to give and help so many people as I possibly can. And by the time I pull into the driveway, I'll sit there and go, and what, y'all, y'all need something now, right? <laughs> this mindset of like, I barely have anything left to give. And so deep down, the, the heart of this is that the most important family to pastor in your church is your family. And so just to reprioritize your role as, as both spouse and parent, uh, I want us to look at Psalm 127. And this is probably stuff, obviously, everybody in here, y'all already know. Uh, but I, I want to just as a way of reminder of, of some of these things. Uh, this psalm has always been a favorite of mine. And um, I think every time I study it, there's more stuff that, you know, get out of it. It's the only place in the world that you read this book and it keeps getting more and more stuff out of it, right? But it says, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And if I stop there for a second. So it's interesting, right, because especially at this point in life, you know, I've always used this as a talk, talk to parents to say, okay, unless the Lord's building your house, everything you're working on, it's in vain, right? Unless the Lord's watching over your city, whatever you're watching out for, concerned about, it's in vain, it's empty. But what's interesting is the subheading over that psalm says, it's a song of ascents, okay? And what's interesting about the song of ascents in the book of Psalms is this, is that uh, if you were traveling from, say, uh, you were traveling from Cornaca into Greenwood, right? Okay, you're, you're coming from one of the smaller communities to kind of the, the, the city that's closer to it, right? Or if you're from Greenwood and going to Greenville, there's a sense of um, ascent that would happen in Jerusalem. You're, you're kind of going to an elevated spot. So you're, you're moving up a little bit, right? And then once you get into Jerusalem, the temple is elevated. And so you're climbing the steps to go up into worship. And so just to picture this scenario here for a second, you've got groups of families all leaving their homes, coming up to Jerusalem, coming up to the temple, and a bunch of priests are standing on the steps singing the song as people are walking in. Unless the Lord builds your house, what you're doing right now is in vain. Unless the Lord watches over your city, what you're doing right now is in vain. It is empty, right? It's kind of what the whole concept of this is. And so what's amazing about this is, you may or may not want to do this this coming Sunday, but if you think through getting your, your ministry staff on the front steps of the church building on Sunday morning and say, okay, we're going to line up and sing this. As families are leaving their homes and coming in, you're saying, unless the Lord, unless the Lord is the centerpiece of your house, this activity of you ascending up this to this city and ascending, ascending up these steps to this temple, it's really empty if it's not influencing what you're doing there. So like, what's the point of coming to this house if you're not making him Lord of your house? And so they're singing this as people are coming in, like saying, what's the big deal? Like, you're, you're, it's, it's in vain. It's empty. If you are leaving all this context to come in. And so what's, what's so unique for me is, right, uh, I, I love to preach this and rail against people, like in the middle of any year. But especially, let's just think about COVID for last year. Probably everybody here, you are responsible for families you have not seen in a year. That's weird. It's really weird. Sometimes I get messages, oh, I love your sermon. You're still alive? I get to know. I got no clue you're even alive, right? Uh, okay, so, so what do I do with that, right? And, and you, you have this moment where, for me, 
regardless of how you feel about masks and whatnot, I just wanted people to be consistent. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, if you're going to be this, you be this in all contexts. I get really exhausted with the people who go, we still feel safe about church, but now swim practice for my kids. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, now, soccer, that's not dangerous. That is essential. But church, you know, like, you know, that, that, that's dangerous out there. What does it do to the formative years of a child that one-eighteenth of the years underneath the home parents have said church is dangerous and not safe and it's not essential? But this is, yeah, you're going to go to ball practice. You're gonna, what, what's going to happen to a group of kids that at least have one-eighteenth of the formative years of their life growing up in that kind of context? Then you go even stretch it out to once we get whatever the new normal is, right? We're going to get to a place where what does the message that our parents are telling our kids throughout the years? How essential is church? And even more beyond that, how essential is faith? Because if we only go to church this much, that's one thing, right? Right now it's like, hey, if you see somebody once a, once a, a Sunday, a, a month, you're doing pretty good, or a year, whatever it is. But like, even beyond that, what was the deal? This whole concept right here is unless you're taking what you're doing as a church family and it's not translating into you as a family, what are you doing this for? Because there's a growing generation of kids that are growing up and saying, we only talk about spiritual matters when we're on this campus. We're not talking about the house. So then these kids go off to college, and their faith never really stuck. You know why? Because it was just an activity that they occasionally went to. Now, where that translates for us, right, for, for ministry folks is, now how much more important it is for us that are raising and loving and caring for a family that one day might look at me and say, yeah, dad was real spiritual when he was at church. But it was just us? Nothing. You know, he, yeah, I mean, he taught us lessons when everybody else was in the room. Yeah, he prayed when everybody else was in the room, but when it came down to it. And so this, this psalm, even though it's, it's the, the guy singing it out over this, uh, the people coming into worship, it really is a, a, a song that the people who were singing that over the people coming into worship had to remember themselves. Unless the Lord's building my house, unless he's the centerpiece of my, my place, like what, what is the point of it all? Then in verse, um, I love it, it says, it's a vein, you rise up early, go late to rest. Is that not a picture of a parent today? Oh, just going, 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 eating the bread of anxious toil. Oh, we're worried about this. Got to pick up so-and-so. Got to get this project done. Got to get to this practice. Just anxious toil. It's like, you're, it's waste. It's waste. Uh, verse 4, a 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like you said. They're a gift. If the Lord gives me a gift, I don't care when it is. I'm going to say thank you, God. And I'm, and I'm going to take care of that gift. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So you fill your quiver with them. What's the point of an arrow? What are you eventually supposed to do? you got to let it go, right? You're putting it to a target, and you got to let it go. It, it, there's going to be, and the beautiful thing about an arrow as a weapon is it can go further and faster than the one who shot it. That's the goal of parenting. That's the goal of families. like, if I could, if I could you know, sharpen this and, and direct this and target this the right spot, what all, all could take place, right? Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Oh, you know, get as many as you possibly can put in there. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate, right? It's a good and noble thing. Now, when it comes down to this, this is how it relates, though, for me. Um, if I think about what the numerous needs among the families in your church, the family that often gets neglected is your own, Okay. So unless the Lord builds their house, I can preach it. But unless the Lord builds my house, I have to live that. And there's a different animal to it. Um, my kids know what my job is. I need them to see that it's more than a job. Jesus is like to me. I'm, I'm, when I say, like, I don't want y'all to think, I'm obsessive over him. Like, I want all my life to be consumed about what, what he's after there. And so, yet, 
if you're not careful, the numerous needs that are going to happen in your life, they will take away from your own family feeling neglected. And if you lose your family, you will lose your ministry. Okay? We've all seen that played out um, in the scandals that take place, right? The things that fall apart, the horrible situations that we go, oh, what a, what a tragic downfall. But I'm saying there, there's a lot of people who may not have that scandal that happened in their life, but they did have a family that walked away from the church. You know why? Because sometimes ministry people get so consumed with what happens in the church that they end up going home. And so this is why it, it comes so close and I think so important for us to think through. Um, when I was uh, doing a, I was working on a D-man and um, just, we had just had our first son, uh, Obadiah. Well, I was in Hebrew class when I heard the meaning for Obadiah and he's worshiper of Yahweh. I was like, that's a stellar name. I want that, you know? And, and so like, we, we, and, uh, and so we named him Obadiah and whatnot. And so I go up to Southern Seminary. He's six weeks old. He's not sleeping well. We're in the hotel. He starts squirming about five in the morning. And I just said, oh, maybe my wife's going to sleep. I'm just going to pick him up, put him in the stroller, start walking around. And it was that week I had to declare what my doctoral focus was going to be on. Okay. So what are the next few years of my life am I going to invest in that will make a big impact on the kingdom? As I'm sitting there and I'm walking around and praying and trying to keep him asleep, like every time I'm like, Lord, I just want to do something big to make a difference for your kingdom. This kid was like, eh, yeah, be quiet, shut up, I'm talking to God. What, what, Lord, show me a sign of something that I could invest my life in that would make a difference for the kingdom. Eh, be quiet, I'm trying to think what I could focus my attention on to make the biggest difference for the kingdom. Obadiah. I, I grew up in a single parent house. Didn't know my dad went in the house after age four. Grew up with my mom and my sister four years older than me. And I had no clue what I was doing when I got married. I still have no clue most days, okay? When they first handed my first son, what do you, what do you do with them? I don't know. Like, I, there's not, like, what am I, I, had, I had no clue. And people would say stuff like, you need to leave your family. I'm like, where? Where do they need to go, right? You need to, you need to shepherd your wife. What, what, where she, what, what, what pasture do I need to take? I have no idea. People say this. I have, I have no clue what you mean. And, and so deep down, like when I was working on that project, I was like, what if the next few years of my life or my entire life was not how sharp I can be, but how sharp can I make that arrow to send that boy off to do more for the kingdom of God than I ever could? Like what if one day my legacy is not look what you did, look what who you sent out. Like, what if that, could I invest my life in, in my son so that he could do more for the kingdom of whatever I could imagine to do? And so that, that kind of pulled aside for me, but then you, you really start working in ministry, and what's the problem with that wonderful ideological statement there? Everybody else is having demands of you of what they need from you. And so, and, and really what takes place is that we have these family neglect that takes place. And there's a whole lot of reasons for, for why that can happen, right? A lot of different reasons that we can go into, but I want to give you a few. The first one is what I would call over, over demanding expectations. Okay. Um, sometimes we cannot take care of our own families and I'll, I'll say marriages and children. Why? Because you have a church and that church has needs and like every church, y'all have some crazies in it, right? Okay. You got some, some really needy people, and, and it never stops. Um, every time that you exhaust yourself through the day, meeting needs, meeting needs, meeting needs, you walk away going, and I hadn't got so-and-so, hadn't done this yet, oh, no, and I hadn't even looked at my email today, right? It's just over-demanding expectations. And this is, this is what's honestly where I've realized that a church's excessive expectations can actually disqualify a good pastor. If the expectations are too severe, if they're excessive, what happens is, is that they get a pastor 
that in turn, they are actually disqualifying by their demands, okay? And, and um, I was talking with a church that is in desperate need right now of some help, and we're trying to figure out, as our church at Rocky Creek, how can we come alongside and help these guys out? And I told this group, let me just tell you something. If you think that a young, energetic preacher can come in here and fix this, you are setting yourself up for failure and him, okay? It's, it's, it's more complicated than that, folks, okay? It's going to need more of that. But there's all, no, 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 we're going to come in here and you're going to do this and do this, and, and the, the excess of expectations disqualify a pastor. And the reason why I say that is, if you look at the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a lot of traits that are there. Um, they're hospitable. Uh, they're respectable, uh, not a lover of money. Those are traits. There are two skill sets that I, as I read it. One is able to teach, and one is taking care of your house. Those are two skill sets. There's, there's something that you do with that. First Timothy chapter 3 uh, says it this way in verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So it's a skill set. You have to be able to manage your own household well. And then verse 5 follows it up like this. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If you can't take care of your house, how in the world are you going to take care of God's house? <laughs> if you can't take care of your marriage, how are you going to take care of anybody else's marriage? If you can't take care of their... Like, you know, and so, so when I come down to it, though, here's the deal. is that let's, I, I don't know all the ministry context that, that you're in right now, but I know regardless of the size of your church, regardless of the breadth of your ministry... Regardless of how things work, you have more demands on you right now than you can possibly entertain. Here's the deal with, um, and I really, I struggle with this nowadays, but um, having friends in different places and, and ministering in, in, in different ways, this kind of stuff. This phone, people text me all the time, like serious questions. Or somebody will read something that I post on Facebook and like, I don't know you, but such and such, but I don't talk to my pastor about this, but... What do you think about such and such? You know, like, how would you fix a marriage that's like, boy, I can't, like, you know, sometimes I get a text message from a college student, like, how do you resolve evangelism and the sovereignty of God? I'm like, on a text message? You can't, okay? Like, what are you thinking, right? Like, and, and, and like, and so you always feel like you're on, right? I, I, I always feel like that phone, somebody's saying, I need you, I need you. I don't care it's seven at night. I don't care what you're doing in your family. I just send you a message. I need you right now. And at some point, some of the most spiritual, rewarding, and most, practical ways that I've done to help the health of my family is I come home and I put that phone away and in my pocket. So I said, I texted you a little while ago. Yeah, I know, but they were here. And I'm not going to let your needs outside this house like Trump and their needs are right here in front of me either. And so with this, um, there are a lot of churches that make um, a pastor, ministry leader be on all the time that they cannot effectively care for a spouse, lead some children, and according to God's word, if they can't manage their household, they're not fit to lead God's house. And so a church with excessive demands actually are disqualifying good people to lead. And, and so with this, the over-demanding expectations, but then the other thing is I'd say is simpler accomplishments can also be a reason for family neglect. And what I mean by that is, um, as I mentioned, how you need to lead your family, what does that mean? Um, since I was 14 and had a call to the ministry, and then I started volunteering like in any kind of way that I could, ministry is easy for me. In the sense, not like it's always like every success all the time, but it's natural to me. Like I can go into a situation like, oh, this is what we need to do in this ministry. Oh, I can figure this out. You know, it just comes natural. And there's been a lot of, um, if you're doing things well, even amidst the discouragement, you get a lot of encouragement all the way, right? 
And that is a simpler accomplishment for me than sometimes going into my home and focusing there because the deal is this. It is easier to build a ministry platform than nurture a family unit. Anybody can build a ministry platform. Anybody can do that. You can get followers uh, in person or online. You can get people who really love your teaching or your ministry or your events. And and that's simple at some point. Um, If any of y'all know uh, Chuck Lawless, he he decided for me while I was in seminary. And and one of the scary things that he often says is, uh, it's scary to me how much ministry can be done in the American church today without the use of God's spirit. Just on natural gifts. Oh, this is, let me pull this out of the toolbox and just use it, right? And, and so with that, it's easier to build a ministry platform than it is to nurture a family unit. Um, God called our family away to Rocky Creek four years ago. We've been there four years now, and we did not have a resume out. We were not looking. Things were, I didn't want to go anywhere, and God was literally like prying our hands off the steering wheel. And what's crazy thing was, I realized we were, I was commuting an hour every day as we were getting ready to move. Um, you go into a new church that's been without a pastor for over a year. You know what happens when you preach the first sermon? Oh, you're awesome, man. We're so thankful that you're here. Man, we've been loved, man. We've been praying for you. Oh, man, I got you this. You want me to take you out to dinner, such and such? Oh, I got you this book, blah, blah. And you're going, man, I'm awesome, you know? Staff's like, oh, we're so thankful we got leadership. Oh, you're both. I mean, you're just hearing it all the time. Like, I'm driving home like, I am the man, you know? And I'm feeling good right now in life. And I'd go home, and i find my wife. You know what she's been doing all day? Homeschooling our kids and trying to find packing boxes. Right? That sounds really glamorous, doesn't it, right? Is she hearing, we praise God for what you're doing right now? No, she's not. Who did she need to hear that from? Me. That's my job, right? And I'm sitting here thinking, this could be dangerous. Like, I'm getting, I'm getting filled up. And she's going, we're changing our life right now, Trav. Like, we're, we're following the Lord, and, and I'm good with this. But, but you know, we're, there's a, a lot of stuff that we've got to do. And so I remember at one point, I really was trying to take things up. Uh, if, if you're not aware that, I don't know how your marriage works, but I am a um, uh, ready, fire, aim person. Does that make sense? Like you're, you're supposed to be ready, aim, fire. I'm like, ready, fire, uh, aim. You know, we'll get to it, okay? My wife is ready, ready, aim, aim. No, no, ready, ready, aim. I'm like, pull the trigger. You know, so we, we compliment each other and sometimes also frustrate, right? And, and I, I knew we are moving from the town that we've always known. We're 30-something. We've never lived outside this area, outside of college. It's a big deal. We've got three kids. Um, finding a house, finding this, all, all, all kinds of stuff. And so I really, beyond my typical, like, go 68 miles an hour, like, I was just going, hey, well, you know, we'll take it slow. We'll do whatever. I'll commute, whatever. And one day she sat down. And I, I, I was, ladies, I was really happy with myself. She said, Trav, I can tell something. You really are trying to take this slow. And I said, you notice? She goes, I really can tell you're making a lot of efforts to really take this slow and be calm and not, like, stress me out. I said, I'm so glad that you said that. She goes, I'm not done yet. Um, she says, but I also realized this. Your slow speed is, is still incredibly quick for me. Like, I still feel like, oh, my gosh. You know, like, and, and she goes, but I can tell you're trying, and I want to thank you for it, right? What is she, all day long, she's not getting the glamours of that honeymoon stage of ministry, Right? The encouragement, and yeah, there's a lot of headaches. Yeah, there's a lot, but you can get a lot of attaboys in ministry. You get a lot of encouragement. You can get a lot. Oh man, what would I do without you? And then you go home, and your spouse is going, "Yeah, can we focus here a little bit?" Your kids are like, "You've been gone a lot," and there's projects at the house you keep thinking about getting to. All this financial stuff, you're like, oh, "I'll get around to it one day." And it's easier if I want to get a quick encouragement, go to the church. It's easier to. That's simple. They don't know me. 
They don't know me that well. You go home, they know you, right? That's, that's harder work. Well, then the, the third kind of, uh, or let me, let me show this, First Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. Um, you remember the story of Eli the priest, right? Samuel as it dropped off in his care, right? And wants you to do something that's crazy about it. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says Samuel was ministering to the Lord as a young boy. I think verse 7 it says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Get this. He was ministering for the Lord before he knew the Lord. Okay? This is the context of what the religious state is in. He's dropped off with a mentor named Eli who's supposed to shepherd him and move him along. And it's told that Eli's sons really should sort of take up the mantle because that's kind of what happens, right? In those days, your sons are now the priest. His sons were horrible guys. Eli's ministry is taken away. And so one night, Samuel hears this voice. He thinks it's Eli. He keeps running in there. What is it? What is it? I'm not calling you. Go back to bed. I'm not getting... Oh, this is the Lord talking to you. You need to say, here I am, Lord. Say something to me. So... This is what the Lord tells young Samuel that night. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house. He's talking about Eli's house, his mentor. Punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now this is what's crazy. He basically says, Eli's going to lose his ministry and his sons aren't going to get the ministry. That ministry is going to come to you because he hadn't done his job as a dad. Now, this is what's crazy is, um, uh, it's funny because as soon as Samuel leaves this moment. Eli comes to him and says, did the Lord talk to you? He goes, oh, yes, sir. What did he say? Uh, he goes, if you lie to me, so help me. I've prayed multiplication of what he just said on your house. He's like, he said, you're going to die. You're going to lose your ministry. and Your kids are going to die. He's like, yep, that's exactly him. I know that voice. And he just knows, right? He, he just calls out. And, and so what happens? He doesn't fulfill his ministry because he didn't do the ministry in his home. Got, got sidelined because of it. And what's crazy is this, his sons were blaspheming God. His sons weren't four years old when this happened. They weren't 14. They were grown men. And God says, and you knew about it and you didn't even challenge it. I know as a role as a dad, it'll change when they're eight, when they're 18, and when I'm 80, right? I, I, I get that. But still at some level, he's like, your sons are walking away from the Lord and you're not even challenging it? No, you can't lead other people. No, this is, these are the first people you need to be leading and you're not even doing that. Sometimes people, though, the reasons for family neglect would be what I call abstract responsibilities. As I mentioned, people say, you need to lead your family. What does that mean? Right? I can remember um, June 12, 2004, waking up to get married and going, I have no idea what this means. I'm clueless. Give you your first child, May 6, 2008. What do you do with them? Right? And then another son, and then another daughter, and I'm just going, it's abstract. Lead them. Lead them what? Family discipleship. What does that mean? I'm looking in the Bible for a seven-step plan of what God expects me to do as a husband. You would go to one marriage conference a year, right? <laughs> you read two marriage books every year. You would go, you're going to pray together three times a week. Okay, if, if the Lord would just say it like that, I got it, okay? You need to do this with you. Okay, I, I, but, but it's not there. So with that, we all know why we are to lead our families, but few of us know how to do it. No one has ever discipled us and taught us how um, no one has ever said, this is how you love a spouse. This is how you lead a child. You just kind of hear these things, but no one has ever actually taught you how to do it. And, and so with that, if you think about uh, all the way back in Genesis, uh, God calls a man named Abram and says, I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. Oh, that sounds awesome. How's it going to happen? Well, your family's going to do it. And Abraham goes, oh, have you looked around? Because I ain't got no kid, God. Yeah, you got to have one. 
have you met my wife? Because <laughs> uh, ain't happening, brother. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not going to take place this way. He goes, no, no, no. you got to trust me. You're going to have a child, and your family is going to bless all the families of the earth. Somebody from your family is going to come, okay? So uh, he knows that. Uh, he's waiting on that promise to be fulfilled. So if you're to Abraham and, and God has told you you're going to bless all the nations of the earth and that your work is going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, that all the nations will know the glory of God. So what's your first step? I would think, well, build a seminary. Get a corporate program together, right? Get, build a religious institution. Let's get a building right together so we can all come together and worship. And as God is on his way to go visit Sodom and Gomorrah, he stops for a trip and he visits Abraham, and this is what he says to him. Here's the plan. For I have chosen him that he command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So what's the strategy to reach the world? You go teach your kid, anybody else in the house, the ways of the Lord. Then what? No, that's it. Get everything you know about me and you pass it on to your kid. And then that will transform the world. And I go, where's the seminary following all this? Where's the corporate program following all this? Where does our network, wait, where, you mean just teach Isaac, my wife, Sarah, and anybody else in the house to follow the Lord, and that is going to change the world? Yep. And you go, doesn't that sound simplistic? Folks, we're in Columbia, South Carolina. Apparently that worked. Think about it. This promise in Genesis 18, 19, you teach Isaac everything you got, and the nations will know him. We're evidence that that process actually worked. Here we are because Abraham at least didn't drop the ball in this. He did. He dropped the ball in a lot of areas, but not on this. He did give Isaac what he needed, and it, it's passed on. It has worked. And so I still go back to this. I think the greatest investment I'll ever make in my life is teaching my family to love the Lord, to, to keep righteousness, to do justice, that, so the Lord will bring everything promised to, that he has promised to me. And so therefore, one day, you're going to say, look what all God has done, not with Travis, but with Travis' kids. Look at what Travis's marriage has accomplished. I mean, just think about it this way. Out of all the illustrations that God could have given us about um, what's an illustration about how Christ loves those he died for? Out of all the things that God could use, what did he use in Ephesians chapter 5? Hey, y'all look at the way husbands love their wives. Do you don't understand how Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you? Look at the way husbands love their wives. How many of y'all would like to tell your city that you live in, just look at all the way the men in our church love their spouses and you'll understand Jesus? You got another illustration, guys? <laughs> okay. Anything else out there you can give us? That's the illustration. No, no, no. Within the home. When I, when I do a wedding ceremony, it is a commissioning service for me. Let these two love be so tangible that people go, I get Jesus' love for us now. I get it. I see it. They're laying their life down for one another, right? So, but yet with this, this abstract of not knowing what to do can lead to family neglect. If you turn over, what are some of the consequences of family neglect? And you know this, right? But if you pour all of your heart and soul and work and efforts and hours and sweat and tears uh, and, into church, you get to a place where you go, okay, what are, what are some of the consequences? So the first thing that you have is what I call a dissatisfied spouse. There is a spouse that's somewhere in this process going, have you remembered me recently, right? And this can be for men or women on, on any kind of ministry staff. You can invest yourself so much into what you're doing, you neglect your spouse. Well, they know they love them. They know this is my job. They know, and, and yet, I go, yeah, that's not exactly working, right? Because if you have a dissatisfied spouse, not only is there a regret and intention and whatnot, um, but how many of you know it's hard to do your job in ministry if things at home are stressful? Right? Maybe y'all never been there. Y'all might be. I, I have. Okay. 
where I know what it's like to go have to preach a sermon on marriage when mine has been in a fight 30 minutes earlier, okay? I'll be that honest with you, you know? I know what it's like to tell people how you need to raise your kids, and I'm struggling with obedience to one of mine. Like, I, I, I live in that sometimes. And yet, if I'm going, 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 and I have a dissatisfied spouse, it, it can look like this in the context that an ignored spouse will grow to resent the, what I call the mistress of ministry. Um, why I say that is, is that I think for years we have rightfully so been so concerned about ministry leaders having some type of immoral affair with someone, and obviously that happens, still happens, and it can blow a church or a ministry, as we're even seeing on national headlines right now, right, of, of when, when someone crosses a line like that. But I think for every adultery that takes place with someone who's on ministry, I would say there's a lot more of people who have walked away from the bonds of marriage because they've been overcommitted to ministry. And a wife or a husband starts to feel like that the mistress is ministry itself. Um, always focused there, attention there, obsession there, love there, commitment there. Um, I'll tell you where it was when I, when I realized that I was in that place. Um, my wife said this in a, a lot nicer way than what I'm going to present it to you today, but just for a summation sense. Uh, we were uh, just had our third newborn there, just starting to homeschool our kids, not sleeping a lot, remodeling in the house, a lot of stuff going on. I'm saying yes to every possible ministry thing I possibly can because I just like it. I love it. I, I love going. Um, she said it in a really nice way, but basically we were having this conversation and some stuff that she was kind of concerned about, and I was saying, no, it's not that big of a deal. This is what I heard in a very nice way. Travis, when I see the way that you lead out in ministry and the amount of attention to detail that you put into it, and the passion and the commitment to excellence that I see you do every aspect of ministry, I wonder what that would feel like if it was committed here to our home. Now, she didn't say it like that. She him hauled around and said, really, I love you, you're great. I'm like, whoa, 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 what did you just say there? You said, she's jealous of the mistress of ministry. I'm, you, I mean, when you're, when you're doing ministry stuff, it's lights out. You, you go all in, and it's, everybody notices it, and I just go, what that would feel like here. And I realized I, I was doing enough. Hey, if, if you're thinking about, am I a good spouse by comparison? You might be like, oh, oh, you should be glad. I told my wife before, you should be thankful for me. I know some of your friends' husbands, okay? Like, you should be really thankful to be married to me, okay? That's not the standard, okay? <laughs> it's not the standard, right? Um, so, so with this, could she grow to resent because of the commitment that I give? Yes, absolutely could. Uh, and, and so I have to be very careful there. Another consequence of family neglect is detached children. Um, we have a reason why PK is a negative term in our culture, right? Pastor's kids are either, I asked, I asked a pastor's kid um, yesterday, we were having a res, pastoral residency meeting with some guys and a guy that grew up as a, a PK. I said, tell me what, what's the stigma of being a pastor's kid? He said, everybody either thinks you're perfect or you're going to be a hellion the options you're perfect you're always going to be caught on you know the bible better than everybody there's this pressure to perform or yeah we know you're probably going to turn out like all the rest of them right now why do some of these turn out like those people who walk away from the church well some of them are because the pressure it put on their parents to perform and to be at created a sense of detachment and they never felt like that their parents were there with them and 
children who take a backseat to ministry will take the first exit ramp from the church. If you take a backseat, if your kids grow up taking a backseat to ministry, and the first time they get an opportunity, they're going to leave the church. And y'all, y'all seen that, right? Y'all, y'all seen that happen. Where kids have grown up in a pastor's house, and they get to college, and they go, I don't want anything to do with anything that looks like that building. You know why? Because those people took my dad away from me. I've heard it so many times. Um, I've heard it so many times of, yeah, he, he knew what it was like to go to a um, you know, financing meeting, but I just want him out in a soccer game. That's what I wanted him out. Well, what's most important in the whole grand scheme of things? The soccer game. The soccer game is more important than that, right? And I know sometimes there are certain things you can't get around, but there are sometimes where you have to say, you know what, I, I'm not going there. I, I, I just thought about this example, but there was, um, so at our house anyway, we, we kind of do a big deal of what I call rebirthdays. When, when a child receives the gospel, every year on that anniversary, we, we're going we're gonna to give a gift that helps out the discipleship. We're going to eat a big meal. We're going to party. We're going to pray. We're going to, you know, re-walk through the testimony, that kind of thing. We're, we're going we're gonna to have a good time, right, on the rebirthday. Um, I was invited to do something in a ministry context that would be a very honorable thing for me to be a part of. And like, oh, wow, you get to do that. And the only problem was on April 1st. I know I thought it was a joke, too. But it was actually going to be on April 1st. Somebody invited me to do something. Well, that was my son's rebirthday. It was his first year after becoming a Christian. And he... And I, and, I could have said, son, if I go and do this, I'm going to be able to go and help all these people and do those kind of stuff. And I said, I declined. I'm just, I'm going to be here. And we're going to go to Chili's that night, and I'm going to give him a book, and we're going to pray, and we're going to do a lot of fun stuff because that's what he wants to do. And I think that's more important than that right now. And so, like, I want him to have the weight of it. <laughs> so, like, I'm telling somebody, like, a 10-year-old kid, like, buddy, I'm so glad I'm here. I want you know, you know. Tonight, Daddy had an opportunity to go speak at this thing, blah, blah, blah. And I could have blah, blah, blah. It's a really special deal, but I want to be with you. He goes, okay. I was like, is there anything, you got anything else for me? Because right now I'm doubting my thoughts, right? Okay, like, no, okay, sounds great, thanks. Okay, all right, great. Well, glad that it stuck, right? But, but I, I want him to feel the weight of that. You're more important than that. You're, you're way more important than that. And, uh, and I don't want him to detach from it. Uh, there's also a sense of distorted message that we can be in danger of. Uh, if we're not careful. And, and what I mean by that is um, if we are telling people to follow Jesus and along the way we're sacrificing certain things, we, we've got some problems here. So like Jesus wouldn't call you to a pace that disqualifies your ministry and distances your family. So any type of ministry that he's called you to at a pace is something that should not disqualify your ministry from a biblical stance of uh, you can't even manage your household because you're not there. It also shouldn't distance your family because they're going, where, where is that? Or where is mom? Like you're always gone. I don't think that honors Jesus. Because if you look at scripture, right? Um, when I was in college and praying through, did I want to get married or not? I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it says, if you stay single, you need to stay single. Because it's going to get harder to get married. I thought, well, okay, maybe I need, maybe, maybe I need to do that. And I'm praying through, can I, can, I, can, I, can I do this? I prayed for about... Three seconds. I thought, no, that's not my calling. But I remember praying and really going through. And why was Paul saying that? You get married and you get killed, you're going to leave a widow behind, you know, pastor, you know, Christian, whatever. Like, then you got kids, it's going to be more complicated. So if you can be like me and stay single, it's easier. Because you get arrested, ain't nobody worried about you. <laughs> Just do your thing, right? So if you stay single, stay single. If you do get married, you haven't sinned, but you got, it said you've just now added the world's anxieties. Single guy's worried about pleasing the Lord. Married guy, he got to please the Lord and please his wife now. 
So it's not like I can come back from my relationship to the Lord. I got to keep that going at the same pace. I just picked up another full-time job now that I got married. Then I get a kid. I just picked up another full-time job and another full-time job and four more full-time jobs for you, right? Like there, there, so much of this. But so I don't think with this, it, being married, having children, not sinful. It's a God-honoring, God-glorifying thing. But you have to think differently, and the pace should not disqualify your own ministry and should never distance your family. And so with this, what are some steps for family discipleship? And the reason why I say this is important for us to understand is that. Uh, I'm a big proponent in thinking that if anything is like template driven, like if you're a husband, you need to do these three things. I don't think that works. You know, there's somebody in here uh, last session that had been married not even a year. He's in a different spot than where I am on year 17, right? For those that are, hey, we just have one child versus I got six spread out, like the different stage of life, different place. Um, also, anybody here, if you have more than one child, you'll know this. You can raise them in the same home, same values, same concepts, same patterns, and they end up different, don't they? They came out the womb different. Like, what, what's wrong with this one? Like, you know, what, what happened here? Like, I don't even get this. Like, what's going on here, right? They just show up, and they're different. And so to apply the same thing on every single one might work on one and frustrate the others. So this is why I think that it is important that you start looking and say, not this is what Travis does in his house or and what Stephen does in his house. No, no, no. What, what is something that, that actually can help me? And so the first thing is to evaluate for you to think, okay, where you are as a family, but what are the major hindrances from discipling my family? And I say that to say also, they asked me to do this session, and, and I want everybody here to know, um, I have missed family devotions at least once since I've been a dad, okay? At least once. And by all I mean at least once, I mean hundreds of times, okay? We don't have family devotions every single day. I have not prayed with my spouse every single day. There have been spans of time where it's been like, uh, hello, <laughs> are we going to get to this, right? Um, I, I, I say this to say I have had the moment where my wife has said, I wish we'd pray together more. I thought, <laughs> I would love to do that. I was just waiting for you to ask. <laughs> you know, what do you <laughs> okay, I'm lost. All right, well, let's, let's do it, all right? Um, I have been in the moments, right, where um, I have been, Dad, are we not going to do family devotion? We haven't done it in a while. Shut up. Go to your room. And yes, <laughs> I was going, right, the, the night that, that Obadiah, that world worst for the Yahweh, right, like seven years old, uh, Mom is uh, out for the night. She's going, doing something. I've got three kids there alone. I'm trying to get everybody bathed. Not anybody die and get them in bed. And then I want to sit down and like, watch basketball, right? All right, everybody get in there. Stop doing that. Get in there. Get your stuff. Get in the bed right now. Lights are going off in three minutes. And, and my, my kids went and say, so are you not going to read the Bible tonight? I was like, I was just about to get it. Shut up. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, like, so get in the bed. Yes, I was just getting the Bible. I, I, and, and, and that night on Tuesday in October, I think it was October 27th, um, reading Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. And then all of a sudden, light bulb clicked on for Obadiah. He says, Daddy, like, Isaac followed his father up the mountain with the wood on his back, and he was a substitute, and then it came back to grant. That's what Jesus did for me. Jesus is my substitute. Daddy, I think I just got saved. Like, what? Sitting there on his sister's floor, Genesis 22, Jesus, uh, oh, the action storybook Bible, walking through it, and he receives the gospel there, right there. And I almost missed it. Now, I think, I think he would have become a Christian if we'd have missed that night. 
But I also go, but that's the time that the Lord ordained. And I was about to miss it because I was like, go to bed. I'm tired. And they're like, are we not going to read the Bible? You know what? It typically takes 5, 10, 15 minutes. I mean, like, honestly, with small kids, if you do anything more than seven minutes, you're asking for a mutiny on your hands anyway, right? Okay? So, so I, but with that, you start saying, okay, so what's keeping me from that? So let's just talk here for a second. What are the major hindrances from discipling a family? What are some of the things that you would say push back, make it kind of challenging for you to spend time with your family focusing on the Lord? What are some easy, easy softball answers here? What are some of the hindrances? Maybe like perfectionism. Perfectionism? Yeah, so in the sense of like, oh, I haven't been nailing it, I've got to get everything right. And if it, also like a streak kind of thing, like I missed it, you know, been going strong, I missed a day, what's the point of it? Yep, totally get it. Huh? Plan. Plan? Yeah, what are we going to do? Yeah. What? what? Okay, we can open the Bible. Where, where do we go right now? You know? Yep. What else? The opposite of perfectionism, even shame and guilt. Yeah, shame and guilt. It's going to lead to despair. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I like, you know, like bring it up now. They're going to yeah. be like, oh, you never do it anymore. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. What else do you say? Schedule. Schedule. I mean, just yeah. busyness, man. Just crazy busy. I'm tired and got this ball practice and this and this and this and this. I mean, Sunday and Wednesday nights, mm. I'm wiped. They've heard enough from me, right? Like, you know, they've heard me all day. Go <laughs> talk when on the church campus. He's real spiritual when he gets there. Mm-hmm. But but am I taking those times throughout the week to make sure that we're, we're doing that there? Um, is technology a hindrance for anybody? Yeah, you know, uh, just constantly just telling you that you need to be looking at something else. That there's there's all kinds of things that can take place. Um, so, so sometimes I say it's important where you say evaluate what it is. Sometimes we need to say we got too much on the schedule. We do. If we can't get to this, we got too much. Um, we're gonna no. These devices are going up at this time, or we're gonna get around to this. And and I see so sometimes you have to step back and say evaluate what is it? What what are the major hindrances from discipling a family? Second thing I would say is focus. Uh, what are the tangible goals for my marriage and parenting? So here's the place where I'd say you kind of lift up a little bit. It's a big picture. Where do I want my marriage to go right now? Where do I want my parenting to go right now? So what would be the goal? And you might say, and don't say, I want my marriage to be better. Don't say that, okay? What do you mean? Huh? I want us to pray together more often. That's tangible. You know whether or not you'll hit that, right? I want us to go to a marriage conference this year. I want us to, to read a, 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 I want us to read a marriage book together. I want us to... to Check in on each other and just, you know, share with each other what they're learning. Like, what's a tangible goal? What's a tangible goal for your parenting? Like, what, what's something that you would say, you know what? This is big picture where I want to go. My 12-year-old boys that are in the youth group need something different than my 8-year-old daughter who needs in the children's ministry right now, right? They're, they're a different level, uh, different struggles, different uh, places in their own development and growth. Uh, so what are some of the tangible goals that I'm trying to get to? And this is the thing. Like right now, uh, trying to encourage my kids to read the Bible on their own, but not being too pushy, where it's like, uh, something else we got to do, right? And when you start seeing that they start getting a, a picture of it, like, this is a good thing. Uh, like, my daughter, um, her gospel group leader, you know, encouraged, said, hey, before y'all come back next Sunday, I want y'all to read First Peter chapter 1. Well, she read it on Monday, and she's like, Daddy, I just read a chapter of the Bible all by myself. It was First Peter chapter 1. I said, what'd you think about it? She goes, it blew my mind. And I said, really? You like it that much? She goes, I just the stuff you're saying about Jesus. It's awesome. I said you should try chapter two. She goes, I'll do that tomorrow. I said, all right. Well, that week she was like, she she was like, Dad, I read a whole book of the Bible. I said, that's incredible. I said, guess what? 
there's 65 other ones you can get into now. She's like, 65? I said, yeah. I said, watch this. And I, and I printed off this sheet of paper. She was so excited about it. It's a, it's a chapter checklist throughout all the Bible, right? She's like, this psalm is big. Jude's tiny. You know, kind of like she's looking at all that. And I said, hey, instead of like getting overwhelmed and trying to work your way through Leviticus right now, let's pick another couple books that, you know, would be good for you, right? <laughs> she said, okay, like what? And I said, I think you'd really love James. And that's only five chapters. You could do that. You just work your way through James. She's like, oh, James, it's all I know. One day I came back and got home. She's like, Daddy, I started looking for all the small ones. I read Obadiah, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Philemon. I said, that's awesome, girl. I said, what do you read? And now, now, for her, once again, but it's getting in the Word and it's something tangible for her to do. And just us talking about it. Uh, sometimes for my kids to do some kind of service project, what, what is it but a tangible goal? But then I would just say this begin. Like, what are the next steps you can take in order to pass to your family? Like, you got to start somewhere the issue of perfectionism or either guilt, either one of those things can keep us from it, right? Um, if you wait around until everything is perfectly situated, you won't do it. Uh, I'll also say this. If you think the thought of gathering your family together for worship, for Bible study, or for prayer would create a mutiny on your hands, that means even more so why you need to do it and do it now. If it's like, oh my gosh, that'd be so weird. Okay, you really need to do that. Then he starts becoming part of the, the routine here. Um, I'll say this with this uh, of doing it what are the next actual practical steps I don't think every single person here needs to do probably the same things and that's a good thing you know where you are in life you kind of know how your um, spouse is you kind of know how your kids are and so you, you do something different but I, I would say this um, to that issue of uh, I, I heard from somebody really helpful that well, before we started homeschooling and whatnot, they said, you know, don't get overwhelmed with are you going to do the 11th grade math or something like that. Don't, don't go there. Can you stay one step ahead of them? That's what you need to think through. And that locked in with us. And when I think about my spiritual stuff with them, you're talking about having a plan? Stay one day ahead. This is what I'm going to do. Get a, get a Bible, you know, reading plan. Or, or just, I, I would encourage you to take one book. Take a gospel. Go through Mark. You know, very action-oriented. You've got small kids. I'm, we're going to read just a little bit each day and just start working our way through this. Find something tangible to do. But with this, when, when shame sets in, perfectionism sets in, one thing I would encourage you to do, I was telling folks that, you know, after January, everybody starts these Bible reading plans, and they're doing pretty good until day 17, and then they quit, and then they're like, oh, it's not going to, I failed. So what do you do? You just wait around until January 1st next year to start reading your Bible again. That's the American way, apparently. Um, and I, I, I told folks in our church, like, hey, do you got a Bible reading plan? Like, um, start small, right? Like, one of my friends who felt really guilty and never read the Bible all the way through, he found a plan that was 13 chapters a day, and you can read through the whole Bible in four months. And I said, so how, how much are you going to read in, like, the last three months? He's like, I haven't read it at all. I said, don't do that plan, okay? Like, don't do You're going you're gonna to fail, because you get behind the 13 chapters a day, you're in trouble. It's like day three. He's like, I'm 39 chapters behind. I quit. I said, or you can just read something. Okay, like you could just do something. So if you've gone, right, this is the problem with Bible reading plans. You go for so many days, and then you fail, and you feel like, forget it. Where do we do that in any other area in our life? If you have eaten for 21 meals straight, and you miss a meal, what do you say? I'm just going to quit eating. You just go to the pantry and get something, okay? So the next chance you get, you drive through Chick-fil-A and you eat something. Why? Because you're hungry and you know that you need to. So, so let's just say that you may say, I haven't done any kind of family devotion or praying or reading the Bible or anything with my spouse or my, my, my kids like in months. So you just give up? 
Or do you say, no, this is important. Let's get to the pantry and let's just do this, right? Let's just get in here. And so if I, if we ever like on a retreat, I would say, okay, everybody, I want y'all to go on the trail and spend 30 minutes with the Lord and write down a plan. We don't have that time for it, but I really encourage you, like, what are some practical things that you can do? The reason why I say this is important, uh, so this is uh, my, my guy, okay? Anybody ever read A.W. Tozer? Anybody here? Okay. So I read A.W. Tozer when I was in um, college, Knowledge of the Holy, First Line, Blew My Mind, Ugh, then I read Pursuit of God, and I thought, this guy talks like the way I've always wanted to talk about God. Uh, I just, man, when he's, he's on, I, I just, I love reading everything about him. He doesn't fit neatly in any kind of theological camp, like in the sense of like he's just this or just... I just, when he talked about the Lord, I was like, this guy knows him. And I just, I love studying him. So um, a couple of years ago, I decided like, because somebody told me that everybody needs a dead theologian that you ascribe to. I was like, this is my guy. Okay. So A.W. Tozer is my guy. So I got two biographies on him to read because I really didn't know a lot about his life. So this is um, one by Lyle Dorset, which is probably the best one called A Passion for God. Tozer was so crazy spiritual. Let me just give you an example. Uh, he would walk to his church from his house because he didn't want to own a car because it was too much money. And he would have his slacks all really nice and you know, pleated and whatnot. He would walk to his church. He'd greet everybody on staff. And then he'd close his door and pull the shade down. And he would <laughs> he'd take his slacks off and he'd put on what he calls his prayer pants. They're these old sweatpants. He didn't want to get his, his slacks wrinkled. And he would lay his, his slacks over the thing and he'd just fall out on the floor and just begin to worship and pray for hours. So his day would come on and stuff. Everybody knew, don't bother him. He's in there, he's meet with the Lord, and he'd come out, and the Shekinah glory would be like radiating from him, okay, right? This is this kind of guy, right? So, like, I'm just going, dude, I gotta, I gotta know more about him. We find out his wife of Ada, uh, and he got four kids and stuff, and, and this is what I found out. I was kind of concerned that as I read about him, I was gonna find some scandal in his life, you know? I'm mean, gonna fill that with like Christian leaders, like, okay, what's it gonna be? What's the skeleton in the closet? What's gonna happen? I was worried about that. No scandal, no breakdown, no immoral, whatever. Here's the deal. But his wife and his kids always felt like he was detached. He was in the presence of the Lord, and he was busy, and he was godly. He didn't yell at him. He didn't beat anybody. You know what I'm saying? He, was, he was a good dad. He was a good husband. He just wasn't there. They would say, he was physically in the room, just emotionally. He was just checked out. Now, this is in the 1940s, 1950s. Like, well, you know, that's, that's kind of what they were back in the day. I read some of the stuff they said about him, and I'm going, how can someone who knew the word so much miss this? Like, it's just blind spot. It blows my mind. Let me read you from the last couple of um, days of his life. It said um, they had just moved to Toronto. He's 66. She's 64. They moved. He says he has fewer responsibilities as a pastor in Canada. He seems to have devoted little, if any, more of his newfound freedom to his wife of 45 years. Prayer, preaching, writing, travel, and mentoring young men took up most of his hours, leaving no time to develop the marital intimacy that they had both learned to live without. Okay? Okay? Now, early Sunday morning, May 12th, chest pains. A.W., Aiden, and Ada, uh, Aiden and Ada go to the hospital. Uh, after several hours she spent with him at the hospital, at his insistence, she returned home that night to rest. He's like, it's going to be fine. we got to do test tomorrow. Just going home. She's wanting to stay. He just says, just going home. That's fine. It's fine. Uh, at 12.45 that morning, he dies. Lights out. Okay? So the next day, she wakes up. She's trying to deal with some stuff. Uh, Aiden, A.W., had, had encouraged her to actually reach out to someone named Leonard Odom, who was a member in their church to kind of help her navigate through some of this stuff. Well, Aiden had always told her, don't worry about the finances. I got it. 
You don't need to worry. I'll, I'll take care of it. And he did. They always had what they needed. That's what she found out after he died. Y'all ready? He had turned 66 a month before his death. She was 64. Now more alone than ever, she had little money in the bank. Never having known about the family finances, she learned about Aiden's death that he had routinely given half of his salary back to the church every month. Now, all right, pastors, if you found out somebody was giving half of their salary to the church, you'd be like, Lord, send some more. Okay, but he was giving half of his salary to the church. She didn't know about it. He had signed over his, most of his book royalties of his paperback books to another ministry organization. So every time that Pursuit of God was sold, somebody else got the royalties for it because he didn't want to be a lover of money. Noble cause? Right. Yeah. But, but, what does Paul say to Timothy? If you don't care for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. Mm. And here she is. He's 66, right? You don't have time, right? So they found out at the final accounting she had $5,000 in life insurance and $7,000 in savings. Now that's in 1959. I did the calculator, inflation calculator. We're talking $107,000. For a 64 year old widow, is that enough for her to live on? No. It's going to dry up quick, okay? So. She had reached out to Leonard Odom, the member in the church, who had been widowed himself uh, 10 years earlier and was very, very helpful to Ada. And Ada really, really loves the companionship. <laughs> and they found unbounded joy in being together, and within one year, they got married. One year. Uh, they moved together, said for the first things that she did was that she began signing letters, Ada, Cecilia, Odom, Exuding independence, one of her first acts of liberation was learning to drive Leonard's automobile because she'd never been allowed to drive the car because it was the point of having a car. For the first time in her life, she shook free from the bondage of depending upon other people or public transportation to get out of town. Y'all ready for this now? Because it's about to blow your mind. During the years 1964 to 1974, several people who were close to Ada lovingly inquired about her happiness. Her responses were consistent. So people said, Ada... Something different about you, girl. What's so different? You just lost a husband, now you got a new one. Like, what's different about you? You ready for this quote that she gave people? You ready? Here we go. I have never been happier in my life. Aiden loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard Odom loves me. All right. Now, how many of us would love to know that our spouse, once we're dead, would say, what do you know about your spouse? He loved Jesus. She loved Jesus. I'd love that to be my legacy. You know what I'd also like to hear? And he loved me. <laughs> and, and, and he loved me. And yet this story of someone, how did he have such a blind spot? So consumed with the ministry, so focused on it, and yet missed this thing right here that she would say at the end of her life, yes, I had a husband who loved Jesus, but now I finally have a lo- husband who loves me. And so my goal is to live in such a way that that would be present, both would be present, and I think it can be, and I think the way we love the Lord is by loving our spouses. So before we wrap up, here's the last thing I would say. Goals for family ministries is this. Number one, how would I encourage you to lead in such a way that your family doesn't resent the church? So that means sometimes telling people no. That means sometimes telling people I can't go there. I had somebody in the last session ask a question like, what if somebody keeps asking you, I need to meet with you, I need to meet with you, I need to meet with you, but you feel like you have it. I said, I have respectfully said, I would love to meet with you too, but I haven't been around my wife or my kids a lot this week, and they've got to take priority. So I can meet you here during the day, or I can meet you in two weeks at this time, but at that point, that's all I've got. What if they get frustrated with you? You haven't lost your family. That's my, folks, we're going to lose members every day, okay? They'll be coming and going out of our life. At the end of my life, I'm going to have one wife and, and a few kids. That's it, right? And so I, don't, I want to lead in such a way they don't resent the church. I also want to live in such a way that your family adores you more than your church esteems you. Um, 
The church can esteem you. They can, they can encourage you. But what I've always, I've always had this fear of preaching a sermon on marriage and my wife being on the front row going, hmm? <laughs> like, that sounds nice. <laughs> like, wow, that, I would love that to be applied here. I, I never want to be in a place where I'm preaching something to my kids rolling their eyes. Wow, that, that sounds awesome. We would love to experience that in our house. I want to live in such a way that if people are standing around my casket, whenever that happens, and people go, oh man, your dad was just so incredible. He helped me out. Oh, your husband was so wonderful. You know what I want them to say at the end of life? You have no idea. You saw this much of that man. And let me tell you, he was even more real at home. Who you thought was there, he was deeper. He was more intentional with us. He gave everything he had to us and, and, and committed that. That's what I want to do. And I would just encourage you to love in such a way that your family never questions your priorities. The way that you give them, that they never have to doubt where are your ultimate priorities. Um, there are going to be times in your life where you're not sure if you're called to this ministry or, or called to that ministry. I can tell you this. I know who you're called to be married to. It's the one you're married to. <laughs> I can tell you who I know who you're called to disciple. It's the kids that are represented in your house. And I... I'm not always sure about ministry callings, but I'm I'm sure about that. And so what I would just encourage you, if you remember that in the midst of it all and all the insanity that's going on in ministry, the most important family in your church has got to be the one that is at your house and that you pour into. So I know we we got to head out. I want to pray for you guys. Um, Father, we do thank you that we even get to call you Father because that reminds us of the, the, the family spiritual blessing that you called us to be into. And God, uh, as you are a Father who is always present, always there, always consistent, I know that I'm incapable to do that. I'm limited, I'm finite, but God, you, uh, as as you give us that example and that presence, Lord, I just don't want to lose my family in the midst of the ministry. Um, I don't want to be excited about opportunities to disciple other people that I miss out on discipling people in my house. I, I don't want to fix everybody else's marriage and mine be struggling or, or invest in everybody else's kids and, and mine be struggling, Lord. At the end of my life, I want to send out those arrows that can go further faster than whatever I could do in the kingdom of God. So I pray for everybody in this room. I don't, I don't know their family situations, but I do know this. I mean, I know what they're called to, but if they're married, I know they're called to their spouse to lay their life down and to sacrifice and to encourage and to submit and to love. And, and Lord, if they've got children in the family, Lord, I know it's, their, it's at your desire that we would teach about you, uh, that love that we have for you, as Deuteronomy 6 says, that yes, sometimes when it's having a family devotion, but God, you talk about it when we lie down and when we rise up and when we're walking by the way and we sit down. It's just kind of a natural way of life that our love for you should be so evident that people in our home should be the ones who see it most of all. So, Lord, protect these dear brothers and sisters in this room that today, that as we go and serve, that we would not lose our family or our integrity in the midst of following you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.